Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. This week, as we sit here on a Tuesday, we have several groups of people who have decisions to make. One is the United States Congress, specifically the Republicans in the House who went on vacation. They went on vacation despite the fact they hadn't yet come up with a bill to pass on Ukraine aid, Israel aid, Taiwan aid, and despite the fact that Vladimir Putin had murdered not only one, but now two dissidents. The latest was one Maxim Kuzminov. He was found on a Spanish street, riddled with bullets and run over. I suppose all the windows were sealed shut in that part of Spain, because that's the usual way they kill people. But this is Vladimir Putin acting with impunity because the West does nothing. He thinks he can get away with it, and sure enough, he does, because the United States Congress, along with people like Tucker Carlson, who goes to a Russian supermarket to do PR for Vladimir Putin, have no interest in defending U.S. interests, in defending freedom. They are shills. They're shills for Trump, who is in turn a shill for Vladimir Putin. So what are they going to do? Are they going to come back and finally pass this? Or they're just going to let the bodies pile up, both in Ukraine and on the streets of Europe? I guess we'll find out. Another group that has a decision to make. No labels. Do you remember them? I barely do. But yes, this is the group that wants to run some kind of bipartisan ticket because, gosh, it's just so hard to choose between Trump and Biden. Really? It's so hard to choose between the sane, pro-democracy, accomplished president and the fascist who is a complete Dunderhead, who is a malicious and complete narcissist. Really? It's that hard to choose between the two of them? Apparently for these folks it is. Now remember, this was supposed to be all about democracy. They were going to have a convention. They were going to have people come and choose their leader. That is not happening. One reason it's not happening is anybody with a name has upped and left. If you recall Larry Hogan, former Republican governor of Maryland, He doesn't want to run on this cock and bull story of a ticket. He has announced he's going to run for Senate from the great state of Maryland. What about Joe Manchin? Nah, he's not going to run with these clowns either. Um, He has announced he's not going to do it. So who is? What no name are they going to dredge up? Well, we don't really know. Because as they said, now get this, a blue ribbon committee is going to be choosing the nominee. Blue ribbon Isn't that what decides like the winner of the butter sculpture at the state fair? Maybe it's the Westminster Dog Show for Best in Hound. What is a blue ribbon committee? It's a bunch of them. It's these same people who have squeezed millions, millions out of donors for this nonsense run that has really only one purpose, and that is to bleed votes away from Joe Biden. So the question is, what are they going to do? Are they going to go through with the stunt with someone no one has ever heard of? And is the someone we've never heard of really going to take them up in the option, thereby ending his or her career permanently? We're going to find out. Well, the last person who I think has uh, some decisions to make is Nikki Haley. She's going to be facing the voters once again in the Republican primary, this time in South Carolina, her home state. Now, if the polls are remotely accurate, that's certainly an asterisk we don't know, she's going to lose and lose big in her own home state. What's she going to do? She says she's going to carry on to Super Tuesday. But why? If she can't win anywhere, let alone her own state, what's she doing in the race? Now, she said in the past she was going to endorse Trump, but now she's getting a little squirrely. Maybe she won't. So what is she going to do? After arguing that he's unfit, that he creates chaos, that he's an apologist for Putin, is she going to turn around like all of the other slimy, cowardly Republicans who ran for president and say, oh, never mind, I'll endorse Donald Trump. We're going to find out because she has a decision too. Can she be a heroine like Liz Cheney and do the right thing? spend her time between now and the election campaigning against Donald Trump and his fascist vision, or is she just going to fall in line like all the rest? We're going to find out. 
lots of decisions to be made this week. So remember, if you enjoy this program and you enjoy our other programs, please tell your friends. They can follow and subscribe at YouTube, at Spotify, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals make it easy to eat better every day. Life is busy and full of surprises, so be ready for anything with Factors pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals that get delivered right to your door. You can choose from over 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more. Plus, there are over 55 delicious, nutrition-packed add-ons to take your meal planning to the next level. What are you waiting for? Get started today and enjoy a feel-good week of tasty meals that are ready when you are. Just think of how much time you'll save with Factor's two-minute meals. They're restaurant quality and come ready to heat and eat. It's great having easy snacks, smoothies, and more waiting for you when hunger strikes. In fact, I just had a fantastic shredded chicken taco bowl before the show. You'll be amazed how much time you can save. Even better, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Sign up and save. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, flexible, upscale options easily done. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule for your deliveries at any time. Remember, Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or mess, giving you whatever time you have to take on whatever the day brings. Head to factormeals.com slash greenroom50 and use the code greenroom50 to get 50% off. That's code greenroom50 at factormeals.com slash greenroom50 to get 50% off. And you can also find the link in our show notes. Well, last week was a big week for the courts and Donald Trump. He was socked with a $450 million plus verdict in the civil trial. And Judge Juan Merchan in New York decided we're going to trial. That's in New York State. That's in the Manhattan courts. That's for falsification of business records. This is not a minor matter. This is not a frivolous case. The judge said it's complex, but it's serious, he said. And who better than to explain it to us than someone who made her living for years in the Manhattan DA's office, in the office that Alvin Bragg now holds. She was at a time chief of the trial division. She's had a variety of roles, and she is a complete expert in New York trial practice and criminal trials in Manhattan. So welcome to the show. We have Karen Agonfilo. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you for having me, Jen. Oh, it is such a pleasure. You know, I think more than any other Trump trial, people who know the least talk about this the most. (laughs) And perhaps that's not surprising, because I think you really have to understand state trial practice, New York juries and New York criminal law to really understand what's going on here. And you're the perfect person. Um, First of all, explain to the audience in basic terms, what is this case about? Is it about hush money? Is it about election falsification? What's it really about? So this is the bread and butter of state court white collar prosecution. It's 34 counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. And for those who are familiar with federal prosecutions, you always hear the feds charging wire fraud or mail fraud. It's sort of a catch-all charge for the white collar type crimes that the feds will often prosecute. Well, the state equivalent is falsifying business records 
in the first degree. So that's really what the case is about from a, what are the charges, but what's at the heart of the case? What What is the case about from, what is the story that they're going to tell? Why were these business records falsified? That's really about trying to suppress information from the electorate because this was done timing wise before the election. It was so stuff didn't come out before the election. And I think a really key piece of evidence that the prosecutor is going to rely on is after the fact, I, I, there's a recording where um, where Donald Trump asks once he wins the election or once the election's over and he wins, he says, well, do we have to pay it now? Uh, so it's very clear just from the timing and I think that piece of evidence where once the election was over, he didn't feel they had to worry about it anymore or pay the money. Uh, I think it's very clear that this was done in order to prevent this information from coming out and potentially influencing voters uh, to to not vote for Donald Trump. So so that's at its heart, at its core, what this is about. And of course, there are salacious details that will come out at the trial where, you know, it involves sex and money and, and all the things that, that are, grip people's attention. And I think it's why people focus on this as a hush money case and and why they, they talk about it being a porn star and all that kind of stuff, because, because that's obviously... Uh, what people like to, to like to talk about. It's a lot more boring to talk about, well, this business entry was was false and, you know, which is really, really what white collar crime is about. You know, white white collar cases are about the most boring <laughs> cases there are, which is why my career focused not on white collar. Uh, my my three decade prosecution career was much more the violent crime side of things because, you know, this is, it's really, it's hard to have a white collar case that you could present to a jury that has a heart and a soul and a story to tell, but this one really does. I mean, it really, really does. Now to take people back, uh, I know it seems like ancient history to people, and maybe that's part of the misconception. This was before the 2016 election, not the 2020 election. And there was something that happened right before this that made it imperative for Donald Trump to try to tie up his loose ends, as it were, to try to suppress the information. And that was the Access Hollywood tape that was released. Take us through the kind of granular timeline so people understand why it was so important for him to do this before the election took place. Yeah, so look, the the Access Hollywood tape had just come out and at the time that was very dramatic and I mean, look, now now looking back it's hard to take us back to 2016. Uh, you know, when when Donald Trump was still um he hadn't quite yet unleashed this um, this sort of embrace, embrace all these things, right? Embrace the Jan Six people and call them patriots. Embrace the. I mean, he just sort of he he's he rather than denying things. I think he's really changed his tactics to kind of embrace it, turn it around, and and sort of do the I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say about me bounce, you know, bounces off of me and sticks to you, you know, and, and so he he likes to do that, where it's, it's just sort of an interesting thing to watch. But but this is still when this all came out, he was still trying to, I think, present a certain way that was that was less of a of a um, you know, less of, of what he is now. And so he was still trying to suppress and hide some of some of this information. And when the Access Hollywood tape came out, it was quite shocking at the time, right? I mean, it, you know, in addition to the fact that you had somebody talking the way he talked about, you know, he talked about forcibly grabbing women in their private parts and getting away with it and saying, if you're a celebrity, you know, they, they like it. You know, I don't know. I can't remember what he said because it was, I can't actually even listen to it because it's so upsetting, but it's, it's about sexual assault. You know, it's brag it, it, in its, in its core terms, it's about bragging about sexual assault. And it's 
around in the context of that tape that uh, that these allegations came out and and you know the 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 story is that he that his third wife Melania Trump had recently given birth and was home with an infant and he was out having relations, if you will. I, I think calling it an affair might be a little generous um, with with um, a woman who is, you know, a porn star, right? Or was. Um, and her porn star name was, was Stormy Daniels. I think her name is Stephanie Clifford, I believe. And, um, and, you know, they didn't want this to come out. And so he devised and concocted this scheme with his fixer, Michael Cohen, to pay her, you know, pay AMI, you know, it was this whole convoluted thing where they were going to get money to her, pay her, and, you know, catch and kill the story, if you will, right? Have have AMI catch and kill the story. And it would come from Michael Cohen so that it couldn't get traced back to Donald Trump. And Michael Cohen would, would, um, submit false invoices mm-hmm. as as legal fees and like a legal retainer, if you will, and um, and then it, because he wanted to not only pay Michael Cohen back the hundred and fifty thousand dollars that they paid to uh, Miss Clifford, they wanted to they what they agreed to do was on top of that pay Michael Cohen a fee for doing this. I think it was fifty thousand dollars, and on top of that so that Michael Cohen could launder this money, they would, he would claim it as income tax. And so in order to account for that, they grossed up the amount and the total amount was something like $400,000 or or something like that, that was paid total in total. And so it was all to prevent this money, this, this information from coming out to the electorate and as a result, it was uh, a campaign donation <laughs> that was never uh, revealed or claimed, and it was an attempt to violate tax laws by grossing up these wages. And so, and so, and on top of that, they in order so that so that there'd be no mistake of this money laundering and and payment scheme, they entered false entries into business records, calling it legal fees and the like, so that they could try and hide this money uh, from from the world and, and what it was. And like I said, you know it's tied to the election because after he won, his response was, well, I guess we don't have to pay her now because I won, right? Because I don't care if it comes out now. And so and so I think that's what you're going, what the evidence is going to show that it's clearly they intended to violate federal and state election laws, as well as uh, intending to violate state income tax or, or just income tax laws. And all of those, and the reason that's significant is because in order to make falsifying a business record a felony, typically just falsifying books and records of a New York business, it's a misdemeanor. But it's a felony when you do it with the intention to either commit or cover up or aid a crime. And so the the question has always been, well, what is the crime they were intending to commit? And, and those three crimes are the theories that you will hear the prosecutors in this case, argue to the jury that they intended to commit. And for our readers' um, memory, AMI is the parent company of essentially the National Enquirer that not only was going to do this catch-and-kill scheme, but another catch-and-kill scheme having to do with yet another woman. So this was not, frankly, as if it was an isolated case. But I wonder now if even with the passage of time, if the case has become bigger in two senses. One, we have seen that what characterizes everything that Trump does is lying. He lied about the value of his businesses. That's why he's going to have to pay a $450 plus million fine. He lied about losing the election. And he lied about this too. 
it's very much in character for Donald Trump. Do those other lies come in or do the rules of evidence prevent them? Because it's not quite a pattern and practice of this kind of crime. How much is going to come in of his other shenanigans? Yeah, so that's a great question. And and there will be uh, there will be a hearing before there'll be emotions in limine um, prior to the trial. Um, some will be they're called Molyneux motions or in, fe- in the feds call it 404B evidence, which is evidence of um, similar acts or, or, or just prior bad acts, if you will, that you that you want to bring into your case in chief and they may choose to do that you have to there there are certain reasons why you can why that's admissible it's it cannot be used for a propensity uh to commit you know to show a propensity to commit crime but if it shows a pattern if it shows their intentions if it shows lack of mistake i mean there's different reasons why you could argue to get this in and so there will be there will be motions about uh, about that which is Molyneux. but the second the second um area of of motion practice that will happen before trial is is if the defendant takes the stand if donald trump takes the stand there's something called a sandoval motion which is which is you're going to want to cross-examine them by any any prior uh convictions or or bad acts or or criminal acts if you will that's a little harder um, I think because he hasn't been convicted of anything and so that's that's a little bit harder but but there will be certain things that he's done and of course there's always the opening the door part of this right um, and and look Michael Cohen is going to be very interesting because they did a lot together right he worked for Donald Trump for a very long time and he is privy to a lot of information good bad and ugly and so I, I could see depending on how cross-examination of his him goes I could see certain um, certain other lies and and other things coming in as well you know if, if the door gets opened by somebody it could be him it could be others um, We'll see. It'll it'll be very interesting to see what actually comes in and and what doesn't uh, as part of this. I would suspect that Judge Marchand is going to keep it tight and not and not let too much of of any of that other stuff come in. We're going to come back to Michael Cohen because I think uh, he has certainly uh, captured uh, the imagination of uh, some people. But let me just talk about Trump taking the stand. If you had a normal client that was engaged in all kinds of matters, including being indicted in other states, in other jurisdictions, who couldn't for the life of him stop lying whenever he got on on the stand, you would not, as a defense attorney, put him on, would you? You know, it's funny. The prevailing, I know the prevailing kind of wisdom is you don't put you, you try to keep your clients off the stand as defense attorneys. Right. And I know that's what most defense attorneys think. And look, I'm I've been a prosecutor for my entire career up until a couple of years ago. So so I take that with a grain of salt. I, I have a few years of, of defense work experience. Um but I, I think the landscape is changing a little bit. And I think what people want is changing a little bit. And people expect, they want to hear your side of the story and they want you to fight back. And I, and uh, look, someone like Trump is so he, in some ways, do you want him to take the stand? No, but he's going to get convicted otherwise. So in some ways you have to ask, what have you got to lose? Right. And so I, you know, he, he's going, he's going to, this man is going to get convicted, right? With this evidence, I think. I, I can't imagine that he won't because I know Michael Cohen, a lot of people are, are concerned about his, um, his lying. Veracity. He, he a, <laughs> well, he has, he has a conviction for lying to Congress and he has a, you know, criminal conviction for this case, by the way, in the Southern district, he was prosecuted for for this. And, you know, he's also, he's, he's got a colorful personality. And so, um, everything, but everything he talks about will be corroborated. And so, and so, um, so if I were Donald Trump, and I thought that I was my best spokesperson, and we all know that that's how he thinks. I think he will testify because, in some ways, what else does he have to lose? Is he crazy to take the stand? He is because all he does is lie. 
And I think in the end, what he has to lose, actually, though, is if he does lie on the stand, which he will, he's subjecting himself to perjury. And he's also subjecting himself to being uh, slammed at sentence. I mean, you know, this, is a, man who, this yes. is a man who does not ever show any remorse. In fact, Judge Angoran, in his 92-page verdict slash decision slash opinion, uh, whatever it's called in civil court, you know, I think it's a verdict, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, it, Judge Angoran's uh, decision um, one of the things he said in there was he he quoted the you know Alexander Post I think it is who said to err is human uh, to err is human to forgive you know to forgive is divine and you know what he what he said was except if you're Donald Trump who just refuses to apologize he refuses to take to show any remorse and even to this day says I didn't do anything wrong I didn't do it and. And so if he pulls that at a criminal trial, that's the kind of thing that will actually go towards, it'll be an aggravating circumstance at sentence. And the judge will take that, so that's an absolutely lawful factor to take into consideration as, as a judge. And the judge has a huge sentencing range here, right? Total discretion, uh, if, he's, if Donald Trump is convicted, he can receive, on the low end, he can receive a non-incarceratory sentence, anything from probation, community service, nothing. I mean, he could, he could literally get almost nothing uh, up to four years, an indeterminate sentence of one and a third to four years. And some of those could run consecutive to one another. So so there there's, an, there's actually a pretty wide range of options for the judge. And if you're 70 eight years old or however old he is at this point, four years in prison is in some ways, you know, that could be a life sentence, right, to someone his age. And certainly, if it's not that, it's taking away some pretty great years, right? <laughs> and so and so, I just think that that's a huge, uh, a huge risk that he's taking by testifying because he will not admit any of this. He will act out and accuse everybody of, of coming after him. And it's a witch hunt. And it's, you know, the, 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 all, all the things he says every day, it's not like we all have to guess, right? He, he, how many times a day does he post on, on social media, the same, uh, the same things over and over and over again, you know, persecution, witch hunts, you know, all that stuff. And I think the phrase that Judge uh, Engeron used was pathological liar. Yeah. Um, and that I think he is. Um, now, a lot of people don't fully believe that Donald Trump could be incarcerated. Even if he were convicted of felonies, even if there were aggravating circumstances, why are they wrong? Why is it distinctly possible that he could be sentenced to incarceration in some sort of facility. We're not talking about Rikers Island, probably, but some kind of facility. I mean, my question is, why not, right? I mean, yeah. you, you you look at, you know, you, you can, every everybody else has, you know, he puts his pants on in the morning like everybody else, you know, he's, he's there's nothing special about him. And I, I guess there's a logistical question about how would that work with the secret, you know, he has a, he has a right to secret service. Um, you know, there's a logistical question that would have to be answered about how you can be protected by the secret service and uh, in the, in the custody of the Department of Corrections at the same time. Um, I'm not exactly sure logistically how that would be sorted out. Um, but there, the the this country has has incarcerated foreign heads of state. We've you know we we have incarcerated celebrities. We have incarcerated politicians. We've incarcerated mobsters. Well, yeah. I mean, there's exactly, but there's there's exactly, and 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 you know, it could be anybody, right? It it could be it could be. Uh, you know, doctors. And I mean, it's just you, it truly the phrase, nobody is above the law has to apply to everybody. And, 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 and at this point, and in this 
trial in on the 15th floor of 100 Center Street, he is defendant Trump. He is not former President Trump. He is not, you know, whatever he was, the celebrity, whatever television person or what all the all the things the you know, my father, my father created the skyline. And you know, like he, he has all these these different personas that he that he likes to say, but he's, he's really just defendant Trump, like, like any other criminal defendant in that building. It was fascinating during the E. Jean Carroll trial, and those were civil cases, obviously, although she certainly did prove that his talk about Access Hollywood was accurate. That's exactly what he did uh, to her. She made the comment that in court, he didn't have any power, that he was just an ordinary person. That's kind of a powerful image. Tell me about New York juries and Manhattan juries, and how you think, first of all, they're going to be picked, and how they're going to regard Donald Trump, who has been, if you will, a bit of a nemesis in New York City for decades, aside from the presidency. How do you think he's going to come across? So interestingly, you know, I spent my entire career sort of in the trenches of, of juries and and trials and all of that. And the one thing I find about juries is you can't BS them. They have a they have a way of getting to the truth. And juries are fascinating. They it, it is very if you pick the right jury and 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 great lawyers know how to pick the right jury and and picking the right jury means you weed out the people who have an axe to grind, you weed out the people who hate Donald Trump, you weed out the people who love Donald Trump, you you, you really weed out people who can't leave their biases at the door and who will, you, you look for the people who will truly just look at the evidence and hold the people to their burden of proof, which is beyond a reasonable doubt of each and every element of each and every crime. That's the same burden of proof in every criminal case in every courtroom in this country. And Donald Trump will have as much control over jury selection as the government. And unlike federal trials, where only the judge does questioning in the in voir dire, the lawyers get to question the jurors and ask them almost whatever they want. You know, there's going to be a juror questionnaire just to weed out the people who can't be fair and impartial. There's a whole group of people that you can weed out just through the answers to certain questions. But then you'll be left with with a cohort of of potential jurors and and each side will have an opportunity to ask them, frankly, whatever they want. And they will be able to pick the jury. So this will be Donald Trump's jury as much as it's anybody else. Like this isn't as much as he likes to say Alvin Bragg's going after him and he's racist and he's biased and Judge Mershon hates Donald Trump because, you know, he whatever, he donated $10 once to a Democratic candidate and how he, he goes on and on about this witch hunt. At the end of the day, this trial will be a jury that Donald Trump picked. These are his jurors that he selected. He can he can knock certain ones out and he gets to pick the ones he wants, right? Both parties agree to these jurors. This is his jury and there's nobody else who will sit in judgment of him than those 12 average everyday New Yorkers. And and I have faith in the jury system. I you know they they and the thing about a thing about the the jury system in Manhattan in particular is they're suspicious of law enforcement and you know there's there's a skepticism i should say of law enforcement this isn't this isn't this law and order 
put everyone, lock everybody up kind of community, right? This is very progressive and they're going to hold the people to their burden of proof. And it doesn't matter. Again, they're also not going to look at Donald Trump and say, oh, you know, I'm going to overlook. There's no evidence, but I don't care. I hate him. So I'm going to convict him. At the end of the day, they take their job very seriously. They swear an oath and and they're going to do it. And I have faith in them that they will, if, if, the, if the evidence isn't there, they're not going to do it. Now, you, every once in a while, you get a rogue juror who sneaks on to the jury pool who has an ax to grind one way or the other. And, and there have been some infamous 11 to one, you know, jury hangs where the, where the rest of the jurors come out and say they're refusing, this person's refusing to deliberate, this person's, you know, saying all kinds of things. I mean, that, that can happen. Um, but hopefully the jury selection will, will prevent that and, and weed that out. And you do have very, very seasoned prosecutors on the Manhattan DA side who, who, you know, if, if anyone can do it, it's them, but it's not a hundred percent, you know, it happens every once in a while. Um, go ahead. I will say I was actually a juror once upon a time when I was still so was a lawyer, I. unbelievably so was in, I. A mur- in a murder case. And I have to say, people do not appreciate how solemn the proceedings are, how serious it is. You think you're going to talk your way off a jury, or you think you're going to be, you know, glib about um, explaining who you are. Suddenly, the judge on that bench is looking down at you, and you got the armed, you know, bailiff, and you got everyone there, and suddenly it hits you. This is real stuff, and I think people do take it seriously. Yeah. Um, one of the complaints we've heard from the critics of Alvin Bragg is that somehow this is too complicated, or there's some kind of you know detail, a complexity about elevating crimes to a felony that is way too beyond the average juror. Is this any more complicated than I think the judge said there have been like. 460 some odd cases of business of falsification of business records that have been elevated to a felony is this like so beyond the average manhattan juror no not even close i mean this is not only that this is you know that that's that's funny that's a that's a a criticism I haven't heard yet because it makes me laugh just because I think about the complex trials that go on all the time in the Manhattan DA's office. Again, this is not, we're not some small town USA that is unsophisticated prosecutor that the, the worst they see is a drunk driving case, right? This is, you You have to remember that, that a third of the lawyers in the Manhattan DA's office uh, um, are part of something called the investigation division. And that's different than the trial division, which is the trial division basically handles all the violent crime. The investigation division was created uh, under Robert Morgenthau because the the crime scene of Manhattan, the the small island of Manhattan, the crime scene happens to include the financial capital of the world, and so every United States dollar that uh, gets traded anywhere in the world uh, happens to go through the Federal Reserve, which is in Manhattan, which literally gives uh, New York the. Um, jurisdiction over over these crimes and so so famously the Manhattan DA's office has has always since i since i've known it gone after some of the biggest most complicated white collar whether it's corporations entities or individuals this is a low level frankly e felony basic falsifying business records this is nothing this is literally like the bread and butter this is this is not one of the complicated white collar cases that um that the manhattan da's office has done and it knows how to do and that the juries have had no problem following and 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 um and 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 dealing with and and you know it's 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 just this is what they do in the Manhattan DA's office and what they've always done and so so I, I I've never heard that before and I'd be and 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 New Yorkers are quite savvy this is not complicated this is you know you 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 literally you 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 lied on a piece of paper you know it's not that complicated right if you're picking this jury what would be 
understanding that we've already eliminated people for cause, meaning you worked for the DA or you are a police officer or you work for Donald Trump or you're related to Donald Trump, any of those sorts of for cause elimination. So you're, you're down to a potential group of jurors. What would you consider to be a red flag for prosecutors? And what's the profile of someone you'd be willing to take? Not that you think would be biased in your favor, but that would be, have the qualities that you think would be well suited to the case. I mean, you know, not to be too obvious, but I think if someone came in with a red MAGA hat. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Right. You know, or, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, look, you look for certain, you look for certain red flags like that. Um, I think I would be looking for someone who in there, someone who is, who ha seems to just be um, a normal person, right? Somebody who is just not extreme in any one thing, someone who's open-minded and will listen to the evidence, probably someone who has, you know, has a, has a life, has a job, has, you know, I, I probably would want someone who's just a functioning member of, of society and, and, and knows how to make, maybe has a job that requires them to have to make decisions because I, I probably want someone who's maybe a supervisor or, or a manager because sitting in judgment of someone is a, is a, is a big, is a really big, uh, a big, a big job. And some people have a hard time doing that. And so, you know, you could be a parent that those people have to make judgment calls all the time about who's lying and who's not and, and discipline someone, right. Or you could be a manager at work or some, something like that. Somebody who has some kind of, um, has something in their life like that. I probably wouldn't want someone too young uh, as a result. I'd probably want someone uh, who has a little bit of life experience like that. Um, so so the, I think that's that's sort of an overarching overarching thing I would want. I probably would try not to get someone who's involved in politics. So if they had right. some kind of political job or political in any direction, um, I, I, I think you'd want someone who's not necessarily entrenched in all in all of that because you form it's hard to it's much harder to leave those perspectives at the door um so i think i think those are some of the considerations i would have is is just looking for for average new york working new yorkers who um and and i, I do i do include parents as working by the way <laughs> so, yes um because i do think i do really think that that can really make a difference um one of the other things they're going to be doing, they're not just going to be evaluating Donald Trump, but they're going to be evaluating the witnesses. And that brings us back to Michael Cohen. What do you think the jury is going to make of him? And if you're the prosecutor, how do you handle someone who, for lack of a better term, is not come to you pristine, you know, clear of complications, clear of defects? How do you deal with that? And is that something that the New York uh, Manhattan DA's office is kind of used to dealing with because they deal with a bunch of criminals all day long. Yeah, so I have to disclose that I recently joined a law firm that was already representing Michael Cohen. I don't represent him and I'm not, uh, I haven't spoken to him or, or had any dealings with him at all other than uh, passing him um, in a hallway at, at once and, and saying hello. So I so I just want to felt, you know, I feel like I should just disclose that. Absolutely. Um, uh, but if I were the prosecutor, see, again, this is where the experience of the Manhattan DA's office, as opposed to the feds, I, I think, well, actually, I think the feds also have a lot of experience in this. So, so I take that back. Um, but I think this is where the Manhattan DA's office has, has, has a lot of experience with this is, is, you know, this is Donald Trump's witness, not ours. He picked him, right? He picked him and went into business with him and, and had him fix things for him and do all of these things for him. So I don't know that I don't see any issue actually whatsoever about him as long, you know, everything that, that the prosecutors have represented that everything he says can be corroborated through documentary evidence. And so he just provides the context and the color. He, he's really, in some ways, he's as much an exhibit as he is a witness because you'll get to see for yourself the kind of person 
and he's I, you know, he's he's definitely made a huge effort to redeem himself for what he did with with Donald Trump, and I give him a lot of credit for that. But but you still get you still will see a window into into who Donald Trump picked and and who worked for him for years. You know, this isn't just a one off, right? This isn't let me let me do this for you. This is someone who really connected himself to Donald Trump for a very long time and and hitched his wagon to him and was very close to him and was willing to commit crimes for him. That's a level of, of closeness. And, you know, I wouldn't commit a crime for my husband. Right. <laughs> I love the guy, you know, right. like, like that's, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty close relationship. And, and Donald Trump picked him and kept him. So I, I think that that actually goes in, I think that's goes in the prosecution's favor. I mean, if he was a, if he wasn't like that, I think I'd be concerned. <laughs> Because then I'd be like, oh, you know, they just made a mistake. They were just these upstanding business guys who made a mistake. Oh, no. You know, this is very much the kind of people who work for Trump. And we have to remember that that enormous civil verdict that was just obtained against Donald Trump really had its origin in his testimony before Congress. When he was asked, did he falsified documents that went to insurance companies, to banks, to other people. And he said, yes. Now, in that case, and here's, I think, what people don't necessarily understand about corroboration. They didn't get a 450 some odd million dollar verdict against him because Michael Cohen said so. They got it because they had pieces of paper (laughs) with numbers on them, and they had communications that were exactly what he said. So there's no shortage of what we call documentary um, evidence um, in this case. There are recordings, there's checks, there's emails. Essentially, I think, maybe I'm wrong, the only thing that Michael Cohen really has to say that maybe isn't backed up by a document is, I didn't perform any legal services for him. This was just a scheme. He didn't expect me to do anything for this. Is that right? Is that kind of the corroboration that we expect to see? That's exactly right. That's exactly what you're going to, what we're going to see is, is the corroboration of all of that. And look, you know, also Michael Cohen has spoken about this a lot. And I think you're going to see a lot of consistent statements, right? He, it's hard to it's hard to lie over and over again, but the truth when you're telling the truth, it, it's pretty consistent. So I, I think you're gonna I think you're gonna see I think people are gonna be um, surprised at how much corroboration there is. Interesting. Donald Trump does not have a poker face, to put it mildly. He does not sit well and keep his mouth shut and be respectful towards others. We saw a little bit of this in the Eugene Carroll case. We saw this in the civil case. Knowing Judge Marchand, how is he going to react if Trump starts muttering or gesticulating or making a fuss in court? What can he do and what do you think he will do? So, look, he, he'll be treated like any other defendant who acts up. And um, so if I have time, can I tell a Jack yes, Smith story? Yes, please. And, okay, Absolutely. So I'm going to tell a Jack Smith story, and it's going oh, to come back to answer your question. So it is, it is relevant. So I started at the Manhattan DA's office in the early 90s, and Jack Smith was a young, and also started in the early 90s, I think a year or two after me. And we happen to be in the same very small group together. There's, there's the, the office is, is sort of grouped in these these trial bureaus and we were in the same trial bureau. So so we worked fairly closely together. And I in the early 90s, I had this case where there's this guy who um, his, his name was Carl Davis and he had felony convictions in every state in the United States and he comes to New York. And he steals a car at a gas pump and then like a like a carjacking. And then he engages in a high speed chase around all of Manhattan and in the end uh, ends up crashing into multiple cars, including a head on collision with a police car, pretty seriously injuring two police officers. Very serious case, very serious defendant. He gets arrested. He is. 
he he gets very unruly while he's incarcerated and he ends up actually attacking one of the police or or prison you know uh, guards and seriously injuring him um, permanently so really really bad guy and he would he would uh, have outbursts every time he'd come to court wow so he it's time to go to trial and the case just kept getting postponed and whatever. So it's time to go to trial. And at the time, I happened to be hugely, hugely pregnant with twins. And so I couldn't try the case. (laughs) And so I was like, I got to find someone to try this case. So this is now 1997. And, And Jack Smith was like, I think he was like a third year, which is pretty junior to handle a really serious case like this. But I didn't know what to do because I couldn't really, I couldn't really go do this trial because I was pregnant with these twins and it was high risk and whatever. So Jack Smith raises his hand and this is what a good guy he is. He says, I'll do it. I'll take the case. And he ends up, he ends up trying the case for me. And during the course of the trial, the defendant acted up, refused to answer questions, refused to, I mean, refused to remain quiet, kept doing all these outbursts, kept accusing the everybody being biased against him and being, you know, that everything's like, like the systems against him and, and, and just refused to, to, um, refused to cooperate. And the judge, and, oh, and I forgot to tell you, he also fired his lawyer. So he was pro se. Oh my goodness. Okay. So there's no lawyer there. No well, lawyer. There was, to there was a legal advisor sitting there, but there was, he wasn't allowed to ask any questions because the defendant wouldn't let him. And so the defendant kept acting up and acting up and acting up and, 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 and doing all the things that Donald Trump does uh, and did during the Ngoron case that Ngoron kind of let him because there was no jury there to, to taint. But when you have a jury, you have to protect the jury from anything that's extraneous, irrelevant, or just not evidence, right? The jury can only see evidence. You can't, there's like even visual things, like there's all sorts of things about like, don't handcuff the defendant because then it sends this subtle message to the jury that the guy's really dangerous and has to be handcuffed. Or like there's all these visual things that that juries have no idea that prosecutors and defense attorneys are negotiating, you know, so that there's nothing that could influence them, whether it's spoken or visual. And, you know, you can't leave certain things out on the table because it could be whatever. There's so many different things like that. Anyway, you have to protect the jury. So Carl Davis acted out so many times that eventually the judge uh, banned him from the courtroom. And so there was nobody, there was nobody cross-examining witnesses. So to answer your question, what can the judge do? The judge can do everything. First of all, the judge can admonish Donald Trump, which he will. Then the judge can threaten to hold him in contempt if he doesn't stop. And the judge could put him in and put him in the back and not let him come out. You know, he can ban him from the courtroom if he if he doesn't do it. And that doesn't go over lightly. But but you can do that. There's there's you. The judge has to protect the jury at all costs because uh, because you know that that's what that's what his job is, and so he will. And I think Donald Trump will will stay in line like he did in uh, Judge Kaplan's courtroom in E. Jean Carroll when Judge Kaplan also was protecting his jury. And I think Donald Trump will do it because I think someone will advise him that there is a whole list of of options available to him. So so anyway, I thought that was a fun Jack Smith Smith story that answers your question of what they can do. One thing that Judge Lewis, who was the judge in the E. Jean Carroll cases, said at the conclusion Judge of Ka- that- Lewis Kaplan. Oh, Lewis Kaplan. I'm sorry. Not, uh, Judge uh, Lewis Kaplan. One of the things he said at the conclusion of that trial, because the names of the jurors had been kept secret, he said, my advice to you is don't tell anyone you are on this jury. How real do you think is the fear of Donald Trump or his supporters? And what does the judge do about that? Does he conceal their identities? Does he, how does he ensure that people aren't intimidated 
or that, God forbid, something doesn't happen to them because Trump has a lot of supporters, even if it's not him, as we saw on January 6th, that will go to the ends of the earth for this guy. I think that's an excellent question that's on everybody's mind. Um, I think that that's going to be the bright line that everyone's going to be looking for. Donald Trump has already threatened Alvin Bragg and the prosecutors, you know, whether it's baseball bat to his head calling for death and destruction or you know what all, all the things that he's done you know the that he goes outside and he says these terrible things every day about the prosecutors about the witnesses about everybody i think the bright line for everybody will be protecting the jurors and um and look i think it's an it's a real fear and it's a real concern it, you know you look at the you look at the um Fonnie Willis two-day hearing that we just had, the part of the evidence in that hearing was how Nathan Wade was not her first choice, that other people turned her down. And even the former government governor of uh, Georgia testified, Roy, I can't remember, said Granger or something, Roy, whatever, I forgot his name, but the, uh, um, a gentleman who was the former governor of the state of Georgia, she asked him to, to, um, be the lead prosecutor and his response. And this is a former governor who's like, you know, very sophisticated person who has a, a real law practice. His response was, no, I don't want to have death threats and security for the rest of my life. And and Tanya Chetkin has 24-hour security. Jack Smith and all his team have 24-7 security. You, you look at what's happened to prosecutors who are truly just public servants doing their job and judges uh, and what what what's happened to them just for doing their job it's actually insane to me um if there was if, if this was a, a a frankly a person of color being accused of being in a gang or or some other thing no one would put up with this and, and i could tell you right now they'd be incarcerated in a hot second um somehow we don't hold Donald Trump to that same standard. But when it comes to a jury, it's just juries are sacrosanct. Juries are just a different thing. And and the judge will do absolutely everything to to protect this jury. It'll be interesting to see. I'm sure they're going to talk about whether or not to seek an anonymous jury. It's very rare to have an anonymous jury in a criminal case. Um, I, I don't I've never had one. And um, I'm not sure there was one in the Manhattan DA's office while I was there. It's it's not something that that's been done, um, but there are ways to to mitigate uh, to mitigate it. There's ways of the attorneys know, but not the clients. Or there's ways of of um, shielding their identity, telling the um, jur uh, telling reporters and anyone in the public that they're not allowed to give any identifying information information about them including uh the, the sketch artists who are there um they can they can trans they can provide transportation to and from their homes so that they can't be followed that's another thing that can be done um they can be given lunch every day so that they don't have to go out and wander around i mean they can be really uh really protected in that regard maybe, maybe their names are only known to to the parties and and not you know not the members of the public that kind of thing so there are ways they can do they they can do it to really mitigate that so that so that um, his followers, for example, and others can't know who they are. Um, and I'm sure they will do something like that. But but I don't I don't the the anonymous jury I've never seen it, so I'm actually not familiar with how that would be done. Two final quick questions. First of all, what do reporters get to do in the courtroom and what can't they do? And if you had a prediction, you said you think he's going to be convicted, what kind of sentence do you think he's going to get? So reporters can uh, take notes, they can type, they can, you know, type in real time and upload, um, upload stuff in real time. They can't record anything, but they can certainly take verbatim notes and type if they want. Um, and, and they will do that. So, so you can expect to get, it's not like federal court where you have to leave your devices at the door. Um, so I, I will expect to see that unless Judge Marchand decides that there's too much of a risk of a surreptitious recording. 
And so he could actually rule that no devices are in this courtroom, but that typically uh, reporters are allowed to have them. And, and court report and court officers will definitely it like if I were sitting there, they wouldn't let me on my device. You, you really have to be a, have a press pass to be able to be actively on your on your on your device while you're in there. So they, I think they would I think that's how it's typically done, but we'll see we'll see what what will be done here. Um, that's what reporters can be can do and they'll have a sketch artist. Um, he'll probably allow a still camera to take pictures a couple of times. But you're not going to see this audio. You're not going to hear the audio, and you're not going to see video. And, and you know, interestingly, we all have been listening to the audio of the pellet arguments, and we've been um, watching the Judge McAfee court appearances. I, I really wish the rest of the courts would kind of get on board and and realize that the world is not going to come to an end if if we broadcast. Uh, and I, I really think in some ways it's the truest form of transparency. So I really Absolutely. wish we could do that, but we're not there yet. Um, and your other question was, what will he get? So I don't know, obviously. So I'm just guessing. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, I think that a state court judge would not, this is not Mershon in particular. I just think a state court judge is not going to put him in before the election. I just don't see that happening. Um, I think if, if he, the federal, if, if he went, if he went to trial federally and the federal judge took the first step and put him in, I could see the state court following suit, but I don't see, I don't see him being put in before the election. So if it happens after the election and he loses, I think he gets jail time. Wow. Wow. That will be a sobering realization for Donald Trump, who may be, now, after three adverse verdicts, all civil, grant him, not beyond a reasonable doubt, he has seen what New York juries are like. And it may be, gosh, like the first time in his life that he's being held accountable for anything, let well, alone- Well, that's why he's trying to do everything he can not to go to trial. <laughs> exactly. And that's why delay, delay, delay has been his overarching strategy. Yep. But- to the delight of many of us, Judge Marshall last week said, we're going. I don't want to hear any more of this stuff. He's a good judge. You know, he's not, I've, I've appeared before him many times. He's a kind of a judge's judge. He's not a people's judge. He's not a defense judge. He's not chatty. He's not your friend. He kind of just does his thing. He's very by the book judge, right? He doesn't, he just calls balls and strikes. Very smart. And he'll keep control of the courtroom so he's not chummy he's not you know he's not anyone's friend he's he's just kind of a he's a, he's a really good judge uh so he's he's in some ways he's the perfect judge for this well that is very reassuring karen thank you for all of your insight and um your wisdom on this we'll be looking forward to it during the trial and maybe after he's convicted, you can come back and give us the play-by-play uh, -play of what you think uh, went right, went wrong. So thank you, me, thank man. you for coming. No, thank you so much for having me. And that was Karen Aganfino. Wow, I don't know about you, but I felt a lot better about the trial. Not because she told us that Manhattan juries are out to get Donald Trump, but because there is a certain fundamental fairness in the judicial system. No, it's not equal. No, Donald Trump gets away with a lot of things that ordinary criminals would not. No, he gets better lawyers than the average physical crime uh, defendant does. But there is something in the beauty of the American judicial system a lot of countries around the world have given up on juries. And we don't have that. We still allow 12 people, or sometimes in civil cases, fewer people, to sit and hear the evidence. And there is something so basic about that and so reassuring. If you fundamentally think that people, aside from you know the social media screamers and the partisans, are basically fundamentally fair people, that 
they don't like criminals. They don't like people getting away with stuff that they shouldn't. They are law-abiding and they expect other people to be. That kind of basic notion, I think, is very reassuring. And it is what keeps Trump up at night. That's why he gets so unhinged on social media, as Karen said. That's why he is freaking out, because he's finally going to have to face a jury. On one level, he thinks he can snow anyone. He can say anything. People will believe him. But I think deep down he knows that jurors are not his followers. They are not red hat wearing kooks. They are ordinary people. And I think that must petrify him. And let's hope that the jurors they get are fair-minded. I think uh, Karen, again, was very reassuring in saying, you don't need someone who doesn't like Donald Trump. You don't need someone who is politically progressive. You just need someone who's fair. So if you get that, and we've already gotten a judge who's a solid judge, then I think we can have some faith in the system. And then it will be up to the good people of the United States when they vote to decide if there is, in fact, conviction in this case or in the Jack Smith case or in both, whether they want to elect a convicted criminal. And that's really what he's going to be if things go as they should, I think, by November. That's what he is. He's a crook. He's always been a crook. He's always been a liar. He's always manipulated the system. But now, well, he may finally pay for it. Well, if you enjoyed this program, I certainly did because Karen was wonderful and it was such an interesting topic. If you enjoyed this program and our other programs, please tell your friends. They can follow us. They can subscribe at YouTube, at Spotify, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.